0: You're listening to the Redfield Arts Audio Podcast. Artist Michael Yampieri drew during live performances of theater, dance, and music for more than 30 years. The book, Drawing in the Dark The Art of Michael Yampieri, celebrates the legacy of Baltimore theater projects visual historian and showcases nearly 300 of Michael's drawings. It's paired with essays by former theater project directors. Drawing in the Dark, the art of Michael Yampieri, reveals the intimate relationship between performance and audience. With quick mindful strokes of his pencil, Michael captured the precision of movement, depth of emotion, and verve of dramatic performance. In August, 2021, specifically August 10th, a Tuesday, there was a book signing at the Ivy Bookshop in Baltimore. John C. Wilson, who curated and wrote uh, and assembled all of Michael's drawings in the book Drawing in the Dark, The Art of Michael Yampieri, was doing a book signing, and a panel discussion was held that day to talk about the Michael's work and the legacy of Baltimore Theatre Project. Baltimore Theatre Project, a presenting theatre, is celebrating in 2021 to 2022 its 50th anniversary, founded by Philip Arnault in 1971. We share the panel discussion with you today uh, in this podcast. it is a fascinating look at the artist, at Michael, Michael Yampieri, and um, the theatre, art, artists, drawing, performers, and Baltimore Theatre Project. The speakers that you're going to hear are the author of Drawing in the Dark, The Art of Michael Yampieri, John C. Wilson, Theatre Project board member and former producing director Anne Kentler-Fullweiler, and Baltimore Theatre Project founder, Philip Arnaud. The talk is moderated by Juanita Rockwell, writer and director, and she is the founding director of Towson University's MFA in Theatre program. The day of this panel discussion, this Tuesday in August of 2021, the weather reports were good the day before, but it being the weather, It changed rapidly. The event was held outdoors at Ivy Bookshop's spacious outdoor patio. A wonderful awning surrounded by trees and woods. A large, appreciative audience assembled to listen to the speakers. Needless to say, there was a terrific thunderstorm that rolled through, and so you'll be hearing behind the speakers in the distance the steady uh, rainfall and occasional rumbles of thunder but um, it did not uh, dissuade the audience it did not send them home they they stayed under the large canopy uh, with us and it was a wonderful afternoon enjoy Thank you for
1: continuing um, I am so thrilled to introduce this panel of uh, people who are all um, people who are part of the fabric of theater in Baltimore City, who helped build and sustain the Baltimore Theater Project, um, and who supported Michael Yampieri and the art um, that you see in the book, and who also contributed to the book in various ways. Um, so the panel is going to be moderated by the wonderful Juanita Rockwell who is a writer and director with over 100 performance projects produced on five continents um, and a professor at Towson University just up the road um, and also an artistic director of Company One Theatre in uh, Hartford, Connecticut for six, six years, years. Um, Sixteen. and not only is she a professor at Towson but she's also the founding director of Towson University's experimentally focused MFA in theater um, and she I'm sure many of you know her, and I. but I, I like, appreciate the chance to brag. She has many awards, including a Fulbright Merriam Fellowship, Baltimore Ruby, and funding from lots of places, including the N- NEA and NPR, um, and lots of residencies. So we have, yeah, she's amazing. <laughs> I didn't even need to tell you that, but now you know, um, if you didn't know already. And uh, she's gonna moderate a fantastic conversation this evening. So thank you.
2: Thank you so much, Hannah. And start with a special thanks to the Ivy for supporting uh, Baltimore writers and the Baltimore arts and giving this wonderful venue, COVID friendly (laughs) venue, or I should say not COVID friendly, right? We don't want it to be friendly to COVID, but (laughs) COVID era friendly, we'll say that. Um, And it's a delight to see so many of you here. Um, I have known all of these people on the panel since the dawn of time, essentially. And uh, I am honored, I was so honored when John uh, contacted me to ask if I would moderate. So uh, beginning with John, who is an artist in so many kinds of ways, visual, performing, literary arts, uh, he teaches, he, uh, create, he has directed uh, a number of pieces, some of them at the theater project itself, Uh, So he has worked in so many different fields and being sensitive to uh, both the the visual components of what Michael was doing as well as the work that he was seeing on stage. So delighted to welcome him, first of all, uh, as the creator, not just the author, but the creator of this book. And absolutely. And... uh, Ann Fulweiler, Cantler Fulweiler, what do you, you do there? Oh, both of them, oh, they're all true. Um, <laughs> uh, as um, was for about 10 years, 12 years, 12, 11 years. i currently the chair. And currently I'm the chair, yes. yes so I has worked. With... <laughs> the that's the bio right there, that's great and has also supported artists through her very long-term connection to the um, Mid-Atlantic Arts Foundation and has been just a very important friend to to Baltimore uh, artists in general and in specific. And then, of course, the man, the legend, Philip Arnault. Uh, <laughs> we can just <laughs> applaud that first to begin with. And uh, Philip began Uh, That was his brainchild, his baby, his creation of the Baltimore Theatre Project and through his international work has made made the theatre project internationally significant and created connections in particular to Eastern and Central Europe but really all over the world has made connections that changed artists' lives audiences' lives, created connections between artists, which I would say at least from my personal experience has been the magic that Philip over the years is the putting people in a room and saying, what do you think? Talk to each other, have some coffee, drink some Slivovitz, see what happens. And, uh, And a lot of amazing things have happened over the years and he's currently uh, the director of the Center for International Theater Development, CITD, which he was just showing me his new product project, and we need another panel to discuss it, the, the significant work of combating the great evils of the day through the arts. Um, Can I say one thing? Yes. Oh, 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 we're, we're good, good.
1: We're good? We were making some
2: great adjustments. Okay, Sorry. good. It would be too bad if we had to end right after I did the introduction. <laughs> so I'll, I'll stop the introductions with that, just in case.
3: Do you, and, do you tap dance?
2: <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but the most important thing, if we get rained out, we must at least talk about Michael Ian Peary and this man who that we really are all here to celebrate his work of almost 50 years, well 50 years pretty much. Did he begin at the very beginning? 30 30 years. 30 years uh, of drawing in the dark. And so I wanna start with just getting reflections from each of our panelists of what their relationship was, maybe a story or a connection uh, about Michael, and I'll start with John.
3: Thank you, Juanita. Um, I met Michael in 1977 when I moved to Baltimore and it was about the time that he started doing performance drawings and I immediately fell in love with his drawings they were just so alive they so captured performances and um, watching them evolve over the years was was like magic but uh, a few years ago he contacted me he'd lost my phone number so he sent me a postcard He said, I'm moving to assisted living, I'm leaving my home, what do I do with all these sketchbooks? He said, should I just throw them away? And I was just horrified at the thought of these beautiful drawings disappearing. So. Um, I called Philip and I called Ann, and I called Bobby Morozik, who also had been a producing director at Theater Project, and we discussed it and came up with a plan to archive them with the Theater Project archives. So they will be preserved. But the more I thought about it, archives are great, but who goes to see an archive? I said, I got to do a book, and it was the perfect pandemic project. Michael is an incredibly humble man and I really wanted to shine a spotlight on him and his amazing talent. And uh, it was a great honor that he allowed me to do that.
2: Thank you, yes. And Anne, how about you, your connection over all those years of
4: theater? Well, actually, Michael and I kind of came to theater project by the way of the TNT festivals at UMBC. That's where he took the first drawing uh, uh, workshops and that's where, as a 15 year old, I had my Um, best. But years later, years later, when um, I was the producing director at Theatre Project, it really was always a joy, I've known like for so many years when I was the administrative assistant there um, and I just loved when he'd walk in and say what colors should I have ready for this show. That was just kind of my favorite thing. Um, and he was always just when he came out of a show what you see in the book is just a tiny tiny piece of everything he drew. And some of the best pictures we don't have because he generously gave them away to the artists.
2: Because that's the kind of guy Michael was. Yes. Thank you, Ann. Philip. Yes. Th- Thank you, Philip.
5: I'm going to tell you two stories. One took place at 7.45 45 this morning. Get ready. One of these stories took place at 7.45 this morning when I showed up at my ophthalmologist to have a laser treatment on both of my eyes after my uh, cataract surgery to blast out something. And this guy has been working on me. He worked on Marvin and Dick and He's a good friend, as well as a my guy. And we left the building together. And I told him I was coming here tonight. And he said, what's that name again? And he told me the story of his daughter, who had Michael as a teacher, and how much. He was loved by this untold number of people in his other world, in his, not in his theater project or his drawing world, but the man gave his life to teaching, uh, and I was so there was some synchronicity to that that warms uh, my heart. Now, I'll tell you how Michael started all of this. When we did the Theater of Nations, uh, we didn't invite companies, I'm sorry, the TNT Festival. We didn't invite companies to come in for a day or two days, play play and then leave. We made everybody stay for the whole eight or nine days to see each other's work. The statistics on the festival, we had 35 companies from America, five from New York, and five international. And we did all of these workshops, and one of the workshops was a New York artist named Rita Fetcher. And she drew in the dark and Michael just picked her up and then asked me, can I come? And I said, whenever. And I write about this in my little, in my essay in the book. That moment where if was an artist the audience was gone, and I kept the ball open, and the artist finally could see it for the record. So they were seeing for the first time not a photograph,
4: but a whole
5: different way of capturing what this one actor, the medicine so did. And the shrieks of recognition, I can still here in my head. So I agree, agree with you, John. This is a celebration of this incredible man. I hope this is being recorded so you get to listen to it. Um, we love you, Michael. And you love us all so much.
2: you. And that, that takes us into what what were some of the thoughts that came to mind? I mean, that's a great example that Philip just gave. But what were some of the thoughts that came to mind as you saw, uh, as you started looking through these hundreds and hundreds of, of drawings? Let's start with John. I'm like, oh, between the weather and this.
3: Well, it was, it was pure joy to just sit down, Uh, We all sat at Phillip's table and looked through the books and started to figure out what we had and...
2: um Even after having given away so many, the the walks down memory lane must have been quite amazing. So maybe we could hear a couple stories of, of... What happened as you went through them? What were your thoughts? What were your
5: memories? Let's start with Philip. I only did drugs once. (laughs) But it was from 1972 (laughs) to somewhere in the mid 80s. So my brain is so scrambled. But my wife was at that table looking at those 5th, Carol Beige, uh, and her memory is like a steel trap. She's kind of the fifth yeah.
2: beetle at this table, I think. Say again? She's the fifth beetle, That's when you look at it.
5: she's... <laughs> the fifth beetle, uh, but uh, you know, she was able to, to, I think she guessed more right than any of us and we all just sort of sat in awe. Uh, Carol uh, has been with me for 50 years. Uh, She's right now uh, in chemotherapy with cancer, but things are looking good and she's doing well. Uh, But uh, she was a partner at the theater project. There was no question about that. That was the secret of my success is always working with People much smarter than me uh, and I highly recommend it to you all.
2: Yes, that's very good advice um, okay. and so these were not when you received them they were literally just piles there was no
4: there were sketch sketchbooks there were piles of just boxes there were the books that he actually very specifically made every year for us each season at the beginning of the season he would pick out some of his favorite pictures and the ones that he didn't necessarily give to the artists he would create a portfolio for that season so that's actually where we found some of the nicest ones and some of those had been in storage at theater project and we didn't realize until we'd already gone through a whole bunch of other ones that there was a whole nother pile so
2: well, and there was always that book that when you went into the lobby that had the, so that you could flip through and see what was last year's season, and and many of you have probably flipped through that book. What were thoughts that you had as you went through them, John?
3: Well, it it was like a trip down memory lane because I had seen most of the shows that he had drawn. Um, So just lots of wonderful memories of great theater, great dance, great music. Um, One of the things that, made this project in many ways easier and and wonderful is that Michael was an incredible librarian. That in these sketchbooks, he wrote the name of the show, the date that he saw the show, names of the art. I mean, he wrote the captions for me. So um, that was remarkable in terms of being able to really um, capture a range of things that covered specific periods of time. it was wonderful to have his portfolio selections of what he thought was best, that um, as I started editing them, um, I, I have done editing, photo editing more than drawing editing, and I've done exhibition design where I can rather quickly uh, edit visual material. So I could flip through these books and put a post-it note, this one, not that one, not that one, not that one, this one. So I did that to make my picks of what I thought were really exceptional drawings, and then went through his picks to pick some as well. So he did help choose the drawings in his own way. Um, So my first take was to find the best drawings. And then because we were doing a history of the theater with essays by Philip and Anne and Bobby Morozik, um, there were certain shows in those seasons that I felt were important to represent, even if the st- the drawing wasn't super strong. So, so there is a chronology that played into the decision-making as well.
2: Well, that's a good lead into the chronology. Oh, did you wanna say something, first?
5: Yeah. Um... It is a trip down memory lane, but I've got six or seven books and sent them to colleagues. I sent one to a woman who never set foot in the theater project. She was the former president of for about 25 years of the Ford Foundation, and I'm working with her now, Uh, Susan Beresford. I also sent one to my partner now at CITD, Howard Shalowitz, who was the founder of um, Woolly Mammoth Theatre 38 years ago in Washington. He probably saw six or seven things at the Theatre Project. Each of those people got, wrote me lengthy responses about how they were moved to by what they saw. Howard understood this. He said, no one ever c- captures that kind of documentation. That is, you is, you know, Al, Al Hirschfeld was really having people sitting around a table. But this was that moment that was that just leapt out of that connection between two artists on stage. They recognized it. We recognized it. And here's somebody who's never even heard of this building says yes.
2: Let's hope that the, with this book getting out that there will be a new position in theaters the world over of, you know, staff artist, uh, staff dark drawer or something. <laughs> because it, it is different. It is a totally different thing than having good photos. Every, we all know we should have good photos. But this is a collaboration of a different kind. So you, as the founder, we want to hear a little bit about each of the periods. You had two decades, and then I have a little thing to read from Bobby, and I want to hear from Anne about her decade. Any uh, specific things, particularly in, in response to these drawings that maybe even looking through where it reminded you of a piece you hadn't talked about in a long time, or hadn't thought about in a long time. What were some of your favorite events or shows in those first two decades? I know that's a hard question. And we're not sleeping over, so we have to... (laughs) Although I'd love to hear all those stories.
5: (laughs) I gave an interview to Ann Bogart four or five years ago, and I said my my tastes in the theater were Catholic with a small C, not a big C. And it's true, I responded to, uh, to lots of different work. What is closest to my heart, and it still is, when I go to the theater, is the work of the laboratory. I saw Gritovsky in 1970, uh, I don't think I only told this to Mark Redfield. I've never said this in public before. Grotowski came to visit me in 1974 to Baltimore. He had heard, he was here on a here in America searching for a partner for a project called the Pillar of Fire. He was traveling with Tony Abelson, who was uh, at a company in Washington called the Washington Theater Lab. And it started my relationship with Grotowski. He invited me then to Poland the next year, and Grotowski, um, Double-Edged Theater, Theater Czar, um, the Iowa Theater Lab. All of those are tied to that tradition, all yeah. All of those are tied to that tradition and they're intensely physical. There's no, they're, they're not acting with here to there. There's a whole body that's moving and uh, I I saw that through line adumbrated in... The images uh, that I saw, and then I saw things that, you know, you saw every performance. I never went anywhere. I was at every performance with that hat, begging you to put money in <laughs> afterwards. Right? I was with those artists every night. I went to Connolly's restaurant and down the Rockfish with them and. You know, it was Mr. Baltimore for these people that we brought in and loved every second of it. Um, but I still forgot some. And, ooh, man act. Whoa. You know, a, a duo from London that was so far ahead of their time when they played in Baltimore. Uh, the Kipper Kids. Did you hear the Kipper Kids? One of them married Bette Midler. And I had them in the theater project and they did a tea ceremony that was insane with little jockstraps on and throwing, throwing... throwing,
3: spaghettios, India ink, flour.
5: It was the
2: 70s, we'll say that.
5: People wanted to know, who are those people on... Preston Street, you know? So a lot of it's captured in this wonderful gift that Jonas and Michael have given to us.
2: So that we go in uh, chronological, I'll just read this little uh, this essay that Bobby Mrozic wrote uh, for the book, and then we'll go to Anne to hear her reminiscences. So Bobby Mrozic was from, what was it again, 1992? 2001 I think something like that Um, and he says within this space there was once a set of sharpened colored pencils moving over paper scratching through the darkness to a light of vivid comprehension these pencils danced in the hands of Michael Impiri the audience the technical crew the performers all played our parts in the hope of creating a new little world on stage And with a measure of good grace, we, in some way, made the big world outside our theater a little more understandable, more tolerable, and more beautiful. Michael's drawings, as represented in this book, serve as a perpetual witness to the worlds of performance that came to life on the theater project stage. It is the defining nature of live performances that the creation exists exclusively in the spontaneous moment of the event. If one were to look back into the theater after the show has ended, all one would see is an empty black room. Michael witnessed the art differently, and I think more completely than the rest of us. Through his eyes, ears, heart, and soul, he translated the many little worlds that he witnessed into these impeccable sketches. So I want to hear, um, as the, the, there were such large shifts and as the world shifted, the artists who uh, came through shifted and I love how you can see that through the book of how there are some artists that actually returned, even coming back, and there are others that new uh, new threads came in. What are some sp- really memorable moments for you in that?
4: Well, definitely for me, some was bringing back companies like Dada Camera that had first been, Bobby had, um, companies that I've met through Philip like the adapters like Sandglass Theatre who's going to be back this year um, and then really I would say my 10 years were mostly characterized by having really really fortunate partnerships one of them would be with Towson University and we presented a number of shows together Josh Cornblow, Hickyard, yeah. um, and then the, the partnerships with, um, we did play readings with Micah we did um, composers' conversations with the BSO. Um, we Pieces did, with Peabody, and, right? And we did operas, operas with, with Peabody. Peabody. Um, so that is really what I tried to do in the time that I was there, was get us on a steady footing, because we had had some financial problems. We very much chose to downsize the larger footprint of the organization, um, deciding that it was really the theater venue itself that was most important, and we didn't need five bedrooms and five offices. Um, and that was kind of really that's what characterized my years there. Not exactly the sexiest thing, but it's why it was still there. Well,
2: but those <laughs> partnerships were—I mean, the partnerships I certainly... have been in. Were incredibly and, important, and Towson students and so many students benefited from those because you did a lot with educational organizations and that is of course absolutely crucial um, I, I also want to um, talk about the very beginnings of the theater project and have Philip if you can talk about really what were the impulses and beginning steps in founding the theater project
5: I went to graduate school at Catholic U in Washington. Small c. Uh, big city.
1: Right.
5: <laughs> it had a very good drama department, <clears throat> um, and in graduate school, I read a book, studying, a 20th century fund study uh, called "The Performing Arts: The Economic Dilemma." And it said that 1.3% of the urban population went to see one live performing arts event a year, GULP. This was when America was strong after the war, was building graduate programs in theater and building theaters at universities, and the regional theater was scrabbling to get a foothold with a lot of Ford money. But we found this tiny percentage that were going to live performing arts events. We also found, they found, Bowen and Beaumont, who were uh, sociologists, uh, that who those people were, and they were Affluent and white, and uh, the average ticket was in today's dollars pretty much what you'd have to pay to go uptown in Broadway. Um, I also was very much influenced by the Speaking of Gutowski, and essentializing not the the uh, not the not the the practice of making theater, but rather the analysis of the simplicity of the meeting of artist and audience. And I used to have a I still have it, a design or drawing that I would. Explain what we were doing I said we're a place that makes meetings meetings of artists and artists artists and audience artists and students students and artists, right? And then there were four Refractions into that central core of meetings One was quality One was accessibility one was livelihood so we paid people to perform and uh, one was looking at communities in the plural not thinking that there was one audience but there were lots of different we could have lots of different partnerships And so it was not a very strong leap from there to making the theater free. To remove, and for seven years, you came and put money in that big hat. And probably if if I could redo anything, I probably would have not gone, I would have kept it free. Because uh, that's where I think it's going to have to go in the future. Uh, one of the first things that um, uh, the director of the puppet theater said during the COVID uh, was what he was doing after. As soon as they got out, he said, I'm leaving the building. I've got to go out. Uh, so, and I, you know, we are faced with really... the the species about a month ago i heard the pandemic referred the global pandemic referred to as the species pandemic and that's a different shade of blue that's you and me it's not all of this it's all of that but it's our species and how we're screwing that up what i think the theater has to do in solving inequities about gender and race and all those things that we've screwed up and then the big thing is how can we keep this planet from crying uh, and the theater has a role to play in all of that so i'm trying to reach as many young people as i can and ask them to drink that Kool-Aid, because I think that's where it's gotta be. And I'm working now with 25-year-olds. We're gonna have, if they live as long as I do, uh, and have a career as long as I do. I just turned 80 in April, and I'm still doing it. And if if they're 25, they got a long time to have a life in the theater, not a career in the theater. And as a life in the theater we've got work to do. We sure do and another uh,
2: landmark coming up is the 50th anniversary that's going to be celebrated this year this coming season and as board chair maybe Ann you could fill us in a little bit of what's
4: what that is fingers crossed we will be able to hold a live event on october the 23rd we are choosing to move towards that with some of our local resident artists as part of that um and all of us gathered and then it's really just a kickoff of taking a year to kind of look back at little retrospective pieces over the entire year um john John's book, Michael's book, is a kind of wonderful kickoff in a way for this um, but we'll be doing both this event and then Mark Redfield's been working to work towards um, archiving some documentation, we'll be dropping uh, some videos throughout the year, little uh, here's five minutes of photo montage here of these years and things like that um, looking at some just, we hope people will Stay in touch, get back in touch with Theatre Project if you haven't been, look for us to come up with things throughout the year, because obviously, we've had to figure stuff out as we're going along, and more than I would have thought. Absolutely. So,
2: just as, as, uh, as we close out here, just to hear from each of you, what is really special about this book for you, and and uh, we'll start with Philip, so we can end with the creator of the book. Philip, what what is special about this book, in your mind?
5: Well, I got the first uh, printing, and I'm told the second printing is so much better. <laughs> and no one is
2: offering do I have me to turn a second. mine? Do I have to turn mine in and get the new b- one?
5: <laughs> no, I think, uh, I gave a speech years ago to MIMES. And I said, I I really like to work with MIMES because I think you all have a low AHQ. Asshole quotient. And I really like to work with people that I care about and that I love. And the, the dance of putting this together with my successors at the theater project I never thought I'd be sitting here being 80 first of all and I certainly never thought I'd be sitting here looking at this strange beast that has morphed its way through the now through many nows um, and that These wonderful people came together out of, you know, nobody made any money out of this. It's out of love for Michael, love for the theater. Um, A quote I just heard, that we build a culture being in a room breathing with each other.
2: May we get to do that again soon.
5: We build our culture when we're all in a room, breathing with each other. And that's what this book celebrates. That's what we're celebrating here tonight. So thank you very, very, very much. Thank you, Philip.
4: And Anne, what's special about this to you? It just really does encapsulate the love that is theater project. It's a beautiful venue. Um, it's a very, very special place. When you walk into it, you feel the the hard work and the love of so many artists and technicians and audience members over the years. And the book really captures that for me.
2: So thank, thank you. Thank you. And John, maybe you can, Leave us with the final word and tell us about your thoughts on the book. And you want me to cry too, don't you? (laughs) (laughs) I'm Um, I'm no Barbara Walters, you go ahead.
3: (laughs) (laughs) Well, the book is special in so many ways, but I think what it does is pull together so many strands of my life. And I love the collaboration of working with Michael's drawings, working with Philip, Bobby and Anne to create it. Um, the huge team of other people behind the scenes helping to make this happen, and editor and Photoshop whiz who cleaned up the, the, the people who digitized all the images. You know, the collaborative process that is theater is also publishing. And um, to have a visual arts background, to have a theater background, to have a publishing background, to bring those all together into one piece of what I hope is beauty that honors Michael is extraordinarily special. Thank you.
2: And thank you to all of you for coming for this event and for supporting the Ivy and for
3: supporting... Do, do we have time for questions? Oh, of or course. Or do they want to close up?
2: Are, are we okay? Can we have take a few questions? That'd be wonderful. Yes, sir. college at the same time in your
5: lives, he got his
2: two 50 degrees at Catholic as well. And he's 80. I don't understand. 60. 60. I think he was, too. Uh, wow, just another tiny world. Tiny, tiny world. Any other questions? Yes. Here. Oh, no. Did I see one over here? Yes.
4: a great question I would, say, I would say his preferred seat was probably three or four rows back on the right hand side um because he was right-handed so that gave him the freedom to move uh you're close to an aisle so you do have a little bit of lighting from the aisle lights so if you needed to change the color pencils or something he did have a little bit of light using that
2: I remember him sort of always kind of lean. You know, he was always leaning a little bit in a way. There was like this, and I and I just realized now you're saying it. He was probably getting some of the light from the aisle.
3: <laughs> but he didn't look at them a lot. He okay. he really had this incredible hand-eye yeah. coordination, yeah. and he would often pick three pencils for a show. He 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 was not constantly changing pencils, but he would use one primary and have two supplementary to to add in color or texture or whatever um he also at some point picked prismacolor brand colored pencils because they were quiet he did not want to disturb Mm -hmm. the artists on the stage he was sensitive to making noise and disrupting the experience for audiences and artists Yes. oh my goodness Um, (laughs)
0: um,
3: I I think probably the biggest design challenge was limiting the number of pages (laughs) Um, I initially thought it would be about a 200 page book it's I believe 236 pages but at one point it was probably 270 and I'm like you know, it's like killing your children to to get rid of drawings or to rearrange pages so you got two on a page instead of one on a page. And just to, to get as much of Michael in there as I possibly could without the book being even more gigantic than it is. Yes.
2: Any other questions? I know that for me, what, um, I mean, I moved here in 94 to take this job running the, uh, starting the graduate program at, um, in theater at, at Towson. And the only thing I knew about Baltimore, well, I knew two things about Baltimore, and I grew up in DC. I knew that you came up here to get, pick up your bucket of crabs. And then the other thing was the theater project and coming to these, I would come down from graduate school and uh, see these, and I never met Philip in those days and when I saw the only teaching job I ever actually applied for was this one at Towson and when I looked at it I thought, oh, that's where Theatre Project is <laughs> and I didn't know, I had never heard of Towson University and I grew up in DC but I knew who, what the Theatre Project was and what it represented you know, to me as a theatre artist and especially in terms of those connections to the international and to the experimental work and when you were saying about free, uh, what came to mind for me was when, that short period of time when director, the director, uh, American director Peter Sellers, uh, took over the American National Theater at the Kennedy Center. He said, "I want to bring." I mean, he named all of these amazing experimental theater companies, and they said, "No one will come to those. It's Washington." And he said, "Well, you just do them for free," and there were lines around the block always. You had to go there hours early to get the tickets, and it was just this perfect proof that it's not that people don't want to see the work; it's financial barriers, and you know we we need to learn that lesson. And some, it's we need to learn that lesson. I'll just stop there. <laughs> uh, any other last questions? Yes.
5: theater's a one-trick pony. Look at what we've built. What else could you use center stage for? What else could you use arena stage for? To tear it down into a parking lot. I work with a company in Budapest uh, that they call their company's name is Maladeep. And they have the Maladeep base. So the movement is inside and outside. We're stuck with subscriptions, with a dollar figure on subscriptions. Do you know that a Broadway show has to play to 90% capacity to break even? Broadway right now is shivering because as soon as they announced we're reopening, ta-da! Everybody ran and bought tickets for about two weeks. And then they backed off. We had to build new institutions. We have to build new organizations for theater. The theater, there'll, there'll be museum theaters that'll survive it, where you can go and you can just get the one trip pony. But the, the breadth of that is gonna be, one of the most interesting things I did during the COVID was a the hour-long telephone call made by a group called 600 Highwaymen. They now are in New York at BAM, they're doing a uh, face-to-face, two people with a third. But this one, I signed up, like called a number, and then any one of you or anybody in America was A and I was B. And then the third person from 600 highwaymen was saying, so describe your room. So you describe your room, and I'm sitting there thinking about describing my room, and they said, B, do you like to dance? And after an hour, I had this extraordinarily deep connection, because we went some real places, the three of us together. So I think we've got to have new forms. I think we've got to have new structures to support that forms. You look at what these big theaters spend on raising money. They have development offices that are, you know. I don't, the, the big theaters, I have a, a good friend of mine who opened a small theater in San Francisco. He always wanted to direct in a big theater. He got the Alley Theater, Rob Milrose. He had a massive heart attack last week. And I looked up at the... They have 327 people working in that theater.
2: Well, and, and most That's, of the theaters during COVID quickly fired all the artists yeah. and, then, and let go all of the lesser staff and just kept employing the you know the marketers and the and the people at the top and this was this is all across the US and so it's going to be interesting to see all of that is going to have to change for anything to move forward yes another question
5: and that's why I have hope hope oh, I really do have hope in these youngsters that are don't choose to work in those big institutions and that are hammering away at how to create a life in the theater, not a career in the theater. Career is getting, you know, the latter, and the life in the theater is having a life and a life in the theater, and having relationships, and having dogs, and right. maybe even having a house. One. Uh, so I think better days are coming.
3: One, one of the things that I've been seeing that I, I'm impressed with too with some of the younger artists that are solo creators have started a thing called Patreon, which is online patrons that pay them to create just like the, the notion of patronage from decades, centuries ago. Um, they're plugging into that so that they can create their work and survive as artists and um, again, As you say, this generation is inventing new ways of doing theater, new ways of creating theater, and I have great hope for them as well.
2: Well, Theater Project was a new model when it started, and everything, we have to keep reinventing, and all of you, you know, we all are reinventing the world at this point, and this is our opportunity. So thank you for coming, and I think we'll wind it up here. Have a lovely evening. Buy books from
0: Ivy. I hope you enjoyed the podcast and, and uh, uh, I really wanted to share this panel discussion. Uh, I've known Michael Yampieri for a number of years and I love his art and I cannot recommend the book that John Wilson. Uh, put together highly enough it's a beautiful beautiful book you can get the book Drawing in the Dark The Art of Michael Yampieri" online you can buy a copy at drawinginthedark-book.com and uh, so check that out and take a look Um, it's also very exciting that 2021 to 2022 uh, beginning in October of 2021 is the Baltimore Theatre Project's 50th anniversary, founded in 1971. And I'll be doing some other podcasts about theatre and about Baltimore Theatre Project with some interviews and some things that are very, very exciting. Um, if you are a fan of world and international theatre or performance art, um, I think you'll be interested in these future podcasts that we'll be doing throughout the year. This is Mark Redfield. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Be well, be safe, follow your bliss.